This episode features NASA astronaut Shannon Walker. Welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living, an adventure podcast presented by REI Co-op, the brand who helps get you outside through gear, classes, and adventures. We talk to experts who have taken a wild idea and made it a reality so you can too. From people who have climbed the tallest peaks, started thriving businesses, and even broken records, some of the wildest ideas can lead to the most rewarding adventures. I'm your host, Shelby Stanger, and I hope you enjoy this show. I'm a fan of someone who spent a lot of time to turn their wild idea into reality. And I'm also a fan of really smart people. Like you, I'm also fascinated with space. Today's guest, Shannon Walker, first dreamed of becoming an astronaut in the 60s. She was selected to be part of NASA in 2004. After getting a Bachelor's of Arts degree in physics, a Master's of Science, and a Doctorate of Philosophy in Space Physics from Rice University, she got her start with the Rockwell Space Operations Company at the Johnson Space Center in 1987 as a robotics flight controller for the Space Shuttle Program. She later got a graduate degree studying the solar wind interaction with the Venusian atmosphere, and she speaks pretty awesome Russian. Among her many achievements, she launched and served as a flight engineer of the Russian Soyuz spacecraft in 2010. She was on a long-duration mission aboard the International Space Station. It lasted 163 days, 161 of them aboard the actual station. So not only did she have to work a spacecraft, but she had to do it in Russian. She's lived in Moscow for a year in the 90s, and when she was there, she once took the Trans-Siberian Railway across Russia into Mongolia and China. She later spent time as an aquanaut on the NEMO, which is basically an underwater space station. She's a badass. She's a pilot. She flies her own planes. She loves the outdoors. And she's seen Earth from a perspective so few of us have. So we talk about what she really had to do to become an astronaut, how she overcame rejection and failure, advice to anyone who wants to work at NASA or anyone who wants to go to space, and what she's learned about our Earth and in particular our environment and society from outer space. Enjoy this episode. And if it sounds kind of funny in some parts of it, well, I called her while she was at NASA. Enjoy the show. Shannon, welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. So excited to have you on. How did you get the wild idea to be an astronaut? Yeah, so I am old enough that I was quite young when humans first landed on the moon, and I was four at the time, and my parents took me and my older sister out in the backyard and pointed to the moon. It was this beautiful full moon out that always rose over our house and um, and just told us that, that people were there. And I thought even at that age that that was the neatest thing, and that is what I wanted to do. That's... And so I started pursuing it then. So how did you pursue it? Like, take me through the steps. Because your, your parents, yeah. your dad was a professor of physics? Yeah, my dad was a professor. And I think, I think one of the best things that I can really tip my hat to my parents on is all growing up, they never told me that girls didn't do this. And of course, at the time, girls didn't do that. It was only military test pilots that uh, went to the moon and were in the astronaut program. And so they never discouraged me. I never really knew what it would take to become an astronaut. I just knew that I liked school and did, I worked hard in school. So that, that was a plus. And it was along about, 
Oh, gosh, I think I was in high school, and they had had um, a selection for a group of shuttle astronauts, and I was reading about them in the paper and saw their bios, and there was one lady who, in her bio, said that she had two master's degrees, and that is when I really had the epiphany. It's like, two master's degrees, I can do that, therefore I can be an astronaut. Awesome. So what are your degrees in? So I have a, my undergraduate degree is in physics, and then my, uh, I have a master's and a PhD in uh, what we called space physics at my school, which is really planetary science, so understanding how the planets work. And then do you speak Russian fluently as well? Um, I would say my Russian, well, one, it's a very perishable skill for me. I do not have a skill for languages, <laughs> um, but my Russian is mostly technical-based. I'm not great having a casual conversation, but if you want to talk about engines and valves and, and fuel flow and stuff like that, I'm your person. That's incredible. So when was the first time you went to space? I went to space in 2010. I've um, had one flight and I spent six months on the space station and I went round trip on the Soyuz spacecraft. And actually in this, I think is that I'm really proud of is that I was trained as the co-pilot on the Soyuz spacecraft. At that time in the shuttle program, we still had our military test pilots being the commander and the pilot, which is the pilot and the co-pilot slot on the, on the shuttle. And so flying with the Russians, I actually had an opportunity to do things that at the time I didn't have within NASA. So I've been trained to go through launch sequences and rendezvous, dock, undock, um, and land a Soyuz spacecraft. And a spacecraft in another language on top of that. It's incredible. Oh, yeah. How, right. do, you, how do you say <laughs> 54321 blast off or lift off in, in Russian? Piat <laughs> chitiri. Uh, oh, gosh. Now, see, now you're putting me on the spot to... Uh, Sorry, I, I um, should have prepped you. Know, you. I know you should have, but here's the interesting thing that when you're in a spacecraft, you're in a shuttle or you're in a Soyuz getting ready to go, you don't get a launch countdown. That is just done for the public broadcast. <laughs> That's what I was and thinking. so even, I know, isn't that sad? Um, even when I worked in the control center at NASA, I would have to bring up the the public TV loops because... I felt you just needed a countdown when you are getting ready to launch something into space. Yeah. So what goes through your head? Because you watch these astronauts on TV getting into these tiny capsules and they have smiles on their faces because there's like a million cameras shooting pictures at them, but (laughs) it looks terrifying. Well, you know, you spend so much time training for a mission and certainly the launch sequences because that's a very you know, dangerous and dynamic time. And so by the time I got into my Soyuz, I had been training in Soyuzes off and on for about three years. And so I'd spent a lot of time in that tiny little capsule simulator. Soyuz? And so... I'm I'm sorry, can you you spell that? I'm sorry, this S-O-Y-U-Z. And that's the name of the Russian capsule that we launch in. Got it, okay. So you're in there, you've you've been training, so your approach to fear is... A little less. So my, yeah, it's it's one of these things you do it so many times it becomes very familiar. And when you're in training, so much of your training is dealing with failure scenarios. And so if something happens in the real flight, you've seen it before and you know what you need to do to remedy the situation. And in fact, I had something happen on on my entry. 
um, when we came back. And we worked through it, and it was uh, it was pretty neat. Can you it was tell- pretty neat how, how the brain works. Yeah, sure. Um, so when you were coming back on a Soyuz, after – so you, you're, you've undocked from the space station, and essentially what you need to do is slow this, the, your capsule down so that, um, so that you will come back through the atmosphere and land where you need to land. At a certain point um, – after the Soyuz undocks, so you've got this main engine burn, so there's engine burn that actually slows you down. And when that is done, the, the normal way things happen in the Soyuz spacecraft is that you will get this series of three alarms so that you know things are progressing the way they're supposed to be. And so we had the first alarm. We saw that that, you know, yes, that's happened. We turned the alarm off. We get the second one, yes third one, yes, and we got a fourth one. And at that moment, I was like thinking, wow, that's not supposed to happen. And I look as a, as a the co-pod, I'm in charge of all the systems. And so I look and I see that our little capsule there is leaking atmosphere overboard. And, and so it's like, hmm. And then very rapidly through my head, I think, okay, it's a slow leak. It's not that fast. We'll probably be okay. Okay, we've got oxygen tanks with us. We're in our flight suits, our space suits. Uh, We've got plenty of oxygen to get to the ground. Everything's going to be fine. And then after that, you just continue on and decide, is there a way to stop the leak or is there not a way to stop the leak? Oh, that sounds so stressful. (laughs) (laughs) Practice. Lots of practice. I mean, you're all the way, you've you've already done like six months in space and you get there and then you spend six months on the space station and then you're coming back and you have this like, you're right about to touch earth and this happens. Right. That's wild. That's a movie. Can't let your guard down ever. Yeah. Well, a short, a short movie. Oh, come on, Shannon. You've had this incredibly storied career. Well, for (laughs) for us, I mean, you're, you're part of this elite club of people, such a small elite crew of people who've seen space what's it like oh it is it is the most amazing thing to be in space and i truly hope that that things progress where everybody gets to go into space that that someday instead of flying on planes we're flying up in spacecraft but it is it is so neat for so many different reasons um one thing that i think is really neat is how quickly your body adapts to being in space when you first get into space your body is confused, especially your inner ear. Um, your inner ear controls your balance. Your inner ear will control whether or not you you know, feel motion sickness or anything like that. And it works off of gravity. And so when you get into space, your inner ear is very confused. And it can, it can cause problems for people. Luckily, I was, I was okay and didn't, it didn't feel too bad once I got into space. Um, but your body very quickly adapts, and it's just... Um, you may not be the most coordinated person in space, but very quickly it makes sense to you to be floating in your sleeping bag at night when you're trying to sleep and sort of float while you're putting on your clothes and float over to breakfast and have breakfast and then just start your day doing whatever it is that you need to do. So that aspect is really neat. And then then there's all the fun stuff if you want to pretend like you're Superman and you know fly through the the space station you can do that that's always fun playing with your food in space always fun to do (laughs) and then looking out the window looking at the earth is um just unbelievably stunning the and the the stars and the milky way and and 
all kinds of things that you can see out the window. It's it's just it's breathtaking what you can see and um, what everything looks like. Is there anything that you remember seeing that just the most surprised you? Um, I think I think one of the things that I I thought was well, there's two things I thought was really really neat. Um, of course, growing up and working in Houston, we never get the opportunity to see the northern or southern lights, and seeing those from space mm. is, is pretty nifty. It's it's beautiful. Um, and then the other thing, there was one day, or it was actually a night pass. We were crossing the U.S., going across the U.S. at night, and on the west coast, there were huge thunderstorms, which are just absolutely fantastic looking from space. And on the east coast, there were huge thunderstorms. But then... In the middle, we were actually passing through a meteor shower, and so we could see meteors. But when you're in space, they're below you. <laughs> you don't look up to see them. You look down to see the meteors. So just seeing the, the thunderstorms, the meteors, and the thunderstorms was, was pretty neat. Oh, that sounds incredible. So what were you doing exactly on the space station? Um, when we are there, we are jacks of all trades. So some days you're doing science, some days you're doing maintenance, sometimes you're just shuffling cargo around in preparation for something else that might be coming down the road. Um, and sometimes you're reacting to failures. We had a, a time, actually it was late on a Friday night, so it was it was past our scheduled bedtime. I had actually just gone to my crew quarters to go to bed when we had some alarms go off that um, eventually led to three spacewalks for my crewmates to go fix something on the outside of the space station. Wild. So you're never bored? No, you're never bored. They, Your days are full, they are long, and the time goes by very quickly, but there's always something to do. And if you even have a few minutes you just should go look out the window to see. You never know. Well, you you do know because we know these things. But you, you just in that five minutes, you could be anywhere over the world. It could be day or night, and you'll always see something interesting. So what? I know this is a big question, but in your whole life has been pretty much NASA, and your your husband's yeah. an astronaut. You know, for, <laughs> yeah. for us lay people, it's so fascinating. Like, what has what has being in space taught you about about the Earth? And about our world. And maybe we start with the environment and the physical part of it. Oh, absolutely. So I'm sure you've heard astronauts say that you don't see borders in space and you don't see borders in space. But what, so the artificial country borders, they're just not there. And so it's really hard to understand sometimes what we're fighting over on the ground mm. when it's just one big earth when you're up there. Um, the other thing that is really important and there's some there's some good pictures that that show this uh, is how tiny and how tiny our atmosphere is. It is just this little thin band around the Earth, and when you're up there, you can see how everything is so connected, especially in the atmosphere. Um, I was up over a, a summer period, and you can see lots of forest fires on the ground. And when you see forest fires, you see a smoke plume coming up, and then you see the smoke plume going across whatever continent it's on, and then you see it stretching across the uh, the oceans and going to the next continent over. And so everything is so connected that you just really don't get a sense of when you're on the ground. Mm. That's really interesting. What about humanity? I mean, because you, you traveled, I imagine, with Russians. Yes, yes. What was that like? 
you know, it's being part of an international program like this really gives me faith in humanity because um, you hear all the politics that goes on in the world, but when it comes down to people to people dealing with things, we're all just people. And, and certainly in the space program, you know, we've had long histories. Our programs have taken different routes and we weren't always friends at the beginning, but we're working together now on this international space program and just seeing it every country, everybody that's involved in it has the same passions and wants the space station and our goals to succeed. And so it really, it is good. It is such a good thing. I think everybody listening at one point wanted to be an astronaut. I mean, you, as a kid, you want to be like <laughs> yeah. a fireman, a police officer, right. an actor, yep. a surfer, yep. a surfer in my case, yep. or, Pilot. or an astronaut. Right. Yeah. Surfer. Sure. So that's a long yes. time from 19, I'm guessing 69, you're like four years old yes. or something to 2010 to going into space. Yeah. That goal is yeah. huge. How, how did you stay focused? Some of it is keeping your eye on the prize and some of it is not getting discouraged. Um, for me personally, everybody, there's so many different routes to get to being an astronaut. And for me, it was a very long and arduous journey because I wasn't selected the first time I applied to be an astronaut. I wasn't selected the second time. I got to the final stages the fifth time. And so over a period of 14 years, I kept interviewing for the job and kept sort of building my resume, as it were, not necessarily deliberately, but when I saw opportunities that I could take that might be something that would be useful in the future as an astronaut, I would certainly go take those opportunities. And so, you know, you just kind of have to, if this is truly what you want, you need to you need to keep working towards that goal. At the same time, you need to be realistic that so few people get the opportunity to have this job that it may never happen. So you've got to be happy in what you're doing. So even within NASA, you were applying to be an astronaut, like to actually oh, yeah. go. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. How interesting. Yeah. And so having extra, obviously, extra skills helped you. Yeah, astronauts certainly these days. The type of people they need as astronauts has, has definitely changed over the years. It's gone from the military test pilots in the early days when we were testing our rockets to um, scientist types that can live and work in unusual circumstances for long periods of time. And so this is where some of the outdoor skills that um, I've picked up through my life really come into play because teamwork and what we call expeditionary training, teamwork is hugely important. So if you can, you know, if you're on a backpacking trip for a week or more and pitching tents every day, moving your stuff, keeping up with your stuff, getting along with whoever you are spending time with is is a skill that's actually directly applicable to living in space, which most people don't think about. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, but don't go away. Shannon shares more about being an astronaut and some amazing stories. Remember zines like the old school punk rock zines? Well, REI recently made a beautiful zine called Force of Nature. It's a collection of art and stories celebrating fearless women. There's 44 different artists and writers who talk about how they define the outside and what it means to them. Inside, there's incredible art, graffiti, photography, and illustrations, including some by one of my new favorite artists, Lovis Wise. She's the 23-year-old artist whose work you might have recently seen on the cover of The New Yorker. 
The whole zine is awesome. You can check it out at rei.com forward slash force of nature. That's rei.com forward slash force of nature. As a kid, you were pretty outdoorsy, I'm guessing. Um, yeah, I was. I, you know, it, it's kind of funny because I'm also, you know, of that age that Title IX did not really come into effect until I think it was in grade school, maybe even closer to junior high, and it wasn't really embraced. And so playing sports growing up was not, at least where I was growing up, was not something that girls did a whole lot. They really focused on the boys. But I was always outdoors playing outside that is what I wanted to do and also as a tribute to my parents um when we had little family vacations in the summertime we were always camping it was you know pitch it in a car pitching a tent somewhere but we've been all over this whole country camping and so started developing those skills pretty young and then later on you know graduated into backpacking various places that's awesome. Do you like? Do you have a favorite place that you backpacked or camped as a kid? Um, yeah, so Yellowstone, Teton area is one of my favorites. Um, I, also, you know, growing up in Houston, we have no mountains. We, you know, it's perfectly flat here, and so uh, seeing those majestic mountains is really special. I would say also some of the national parks in southern um, Arizona, Utah. Um, you know your Zions, your Bryce Canyons, those are really neat too. So Brandy was telling me that as an astronaut, you have to have obviously wilderness survival, scuba, first aid, all of these outdoor yep. skills. Talk to me a little bit about your, your training, what you have to have. So since people come in from all kinds of diverse backgrounds, we don't assume that anybody's got any particular training. So we make sure that crews get the training they need. So some of the survival type skills. We actually send astronauts to, uh, they design it for us, uh, survival training um, with the military. So we get some basic skills there. We do um, leadership training in the outdoors. And so we'll, we'll go um, take a group, stay out two weeks, and it may be um, hiking in some mountains somewhere where you sort of Put to the test, it, you know, it's not going to be easy. So you're learning about yourself if you've got limitations, you know, if you, how you do if there's not as much food or you're, you know, you're ready to quit for the day, but you have to get to a certain destination. And so dealing with the team care, self-care kind of things, we try and teach that. You might be hiking, you might be on a kayaking tour somewhere doing similar things. And so we build that up, and then there's other skills that we need. Um, since a lot of our spacewalk training is done underwater in a giant swimming pool, we want everybody to have scuba skills. And so we teach people to scuba dive, um, which is always a fun thing to do if you're in a, in a place that's got good scuba diving. It's also pretty cool in the pool because you've got an entire space station model down there. So, so swimming around the space station on the outside is, is pretty neat. Um, some of the other things that we learn is flying high-performance aircraft. We fly in T-38 jet aircraft, and that is also to really emphasize the skills of you have to make decisions, and they have real consequences, and you can seriously hurt yourself if you don't do it right kind of thing. So, 
variety of stuff aside from all the technical stuff that we have to learn. Being a podcaster is so easy. This is amazing talking to you. <laughs> you know, what about being an aquanaut? So I read that you spent some time on an underwater yeah, space station. I, I didn't even know about this. Talk, talk to us about what it is and what the NEMO was and, and what you did. Yeah, so, gosh, NEMO, that's one of these NASA acronyms that you're going to stretch my memory. NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations or something like that. So there is a habitat off the coast of Florida that is only about 30 feet below the water, which doesn't sound much, but you go in there and you are there for a week or two, depending on the mission and how the weather above the water is doing, um, and you are doing either science in that habitat or you're developing things for spacewalks. We did a lot of that, looking at tools outside when we're out underwater. And the thing that makes this really, um, it's a good analogy for spaceflight for two reasons. One, you have a schedule each day and you're expected to work what the, the ground needs you to work. And so that is one thing that's being an astronaut, your schedule, your life is not your own. Somebody is always telling you what to do, when, and what country you need to be in, and you just have to roll with it. And if you're not somebody that can roll with it, you are not going to be a happy astronaut, um, And especially on space station where your days are packed. So as an aquanaut, you're doing stuff underwater. And then the other thing is you can't leave since you are essentially saturated underwater. When you, you know, as um, people who scuba dive know, sometimes you have to pause coming up because you don't want to get the bends. It is a 24-hour process um, to get to the place where you can actually leave that habitat and come back up to the surface uh, safely. Wow, that's so interesting. So it's it's an underwater space station, and when you say you do science, it's it's what it's collecting soil, collecting samples. It could it could be anything. We engage scientists that do underwater science, and so it could be you need to go out and collect some samples and process those samples inside, or it can be, hey, we want to figure out if we can build this structure in space, so let's see if we can do it underwater first. Mm. And when you're underwater, um, we actually don't wear scuba tanks um, when we're doing the work around the habitat. We have an old school um, diving bell helmet that's got umbilicals that are are bringing your your oxygen to you and your communications. And so um, you're not encumbered by scuba tanks, but you are, you know, operating underwater, which is, it's very similar in some sense to being in space. Oh, it's so interesting. So Nemo is NASA Extreme Environmental Mission Operations. I think you had that. I think I was close. You, you had it. It sounds, it sounds pretty (laughs) incredible. You know, what else, what else do you want to explore? Like, what are you most excited about right now? Oh, I think right now, obviously, well, maybe not obvious, but I would love to go back to the space station, and one of these days I will get an opportunity, so I'm definitely looking forward to that. But I think for me, exploring the world, um, I've had an opportunity to go to a lot of places around the world, and there's so much more to see. And so getting out there, exploring, exploring the world, meeting people, and then exploring the natural side of the world. So not just going to the big cities, but getting out to the backcountry somewhere and, and, and seeing the world that way, I would love to do. So you took the Trans-Siberian w- Railway from Moscow yes. to Beijing. How old were you when yes. you did that? Let's see, I did that in the year 2000. So You're in your like 30s, uh, probably. Yeah, I'd be 35. There okay. Anyway, it was neat. It was neat. It's a, it, 
and at that time, it, it's a much more um, touristy thing to do now. But at that time, it was pretty much only Russians um, that did that as a as a form of transport to get from one side of Russia to the other. And and so it was neat. And we actually went all the way across to uh, late, to Lake Irkutsk region, which is about two thirds of the way across. Um, Russia, and then we had the option to go all the way east across Russia or go south into Mongolia. And so I wanted to go see Mongolia. Um, and so we went through Mongolia and then on to Beijing. So got to see parts of the world that normally wouldn't have an opportunity to do. And I got to do that because at the time, it was before I was an astronaut, I was working in what we call the space station program. And I had I had an assignment and I actually got to live in Moscow for a year doing some integration with the Russians as we were preparing to start building the space station. You've had a remarkable, remarkable career. I think everybody right now wants to be an astronaut. So if you're young... I think they should. Yeah, well, if you're young, how can you get involved in NASA or any space program? And and if you're old, is there anything you can do? (laughs) Absolutely. So um, the first thing to realize about NASA is just about any job you're interested in, we do it at NASA. I can't guarantee that surfing is one, but just about anything else, everything, doctors, lawyers, artists, engineers, anything, NASA does it in in one of the centers and then probably also in the human spaceflight side. So if you are young and want to be an astronaut, um, one of the requirements is that you need to have a technical degree. So you need to go through school and major in science or engineering, uh, mathematics counts, or take the medical route, become a medical doctor, or become a military route, go through the military. But we need that science and engineering background for the astronauts that we're hiring today. But that being said, we need very broad and diverse people with diverse skills. And so we don't take just one flavor of person. We want people that have skills that have done things like wintered over in Antarctica because that is a huge expeditionary skill in in dealing with adverse conditions. We want people that are comfortable working with different cultures because it's an international space station. And so any opportunity you have to go do something, I would advise kids to take it because there are so many ways to get from point A to point B, and it does not have to be a straight line. In fact, if it's not a straight line for astronauts, it's even better. Uh, If you are older, um, there's no age limit to being an astronaut. As long as you can pass the flight physical that we have to do every year, you can be be an astronaut. So typically we hire people in their mid-30s-ish. We need people that have got some experience in the world um, and that are going to spend a lot of time at NASA because it is it is a process. You know, you don't get hired and then go fly in space the next week. It's a several year process to get the training before you can fly. So, beyond that, NASA wants good people. So if you are good at what you want to do and want to be part of the space program, seek out a NASA center and and see how you might fit. Do you think NASA needs a podcaster? <laughs> uh, we do podcast absolutely. We do. We public affairs is part of it too. That's yeah, awesome. So one of NASA's jobs, you know, from the initial space act that created NASA is getting our message out to the public. This is what we do. We are a civilian organization and we do it for 
all humankind. And so we need to get the word out. So absolutely, we need podcasters. So a lot of the shows recently I've done have been on taking care of our earth. And I've interviewed a lot of people who are yes. creating businesses that are focused on sustainability. I mean, yes. and you have a really unique perspective on the environment. Obviously, you've seen the world from above. You know, Any advice on on how we can take better care of our planet? And obviously, any thoughts on like how the planet has changed that you can talk about? Yeah, you know, the planet has changed. And if people have time to root around in the NASA photos, which are all online, you can see how the how the planet has changed. You can see where the lakes have dried up and the glaciers that aren't there anymore are melting away. Um, so first step, you've got to be aware. You've got to be aware that everything we do has an effect on the planet. And so you need to be deliberate on the choices you make. And it doesn't have to be huge choices. We're not saying, you know, give up all your cars and, you know, stop all the plastic, which is pretty much impossible at this point, but you can, you can do little things about recycling more small steps and get out there and get to know nature because the more you know it, the more you'll appreciate it and really understand how the world is connected and what we do here affects, affects people on the other side of the earth. Mm. You're married to an astronaut. What's that like? Yep. Well, you know, sometimes you got to really just turn the work off um, and not talk about work all the time. But it's good. And I think what was really good for me is he he was selected as an astronaut first. And so he had been through a lot of the things that I was going through when I started my training for my long duration flight. And I thought it was really neat. He did such a good job by just letting me experience it. He would remind me every once in a while don't get too wrapped up in it. You know, you got to take time to smell the roses and enjoy what you're doing, but let me have my own experiences. So yeah, it works. It works. And does he, does he, has he been to space a bunch or? He has, uh, he's retired now, but he actually flew into space four times on the shuttle and spent about four, four and a half months on the Mir space station with the Russians, so the precursor space station to the International Space Station. Oh, interesting. Okay, any advice that you would give to just your 15-year-old self or even 15-year-olds everywhere? It's such a, uh, it's such a poignant yes. time. It is. It's a difficult time. Um, I would say don't be afraid. Whatever it is, don't be afraid. You have so much more capability than you may think you may have and just go out and do because you'll be better for it in the long run and you will have such a great adventures to look back on when you get to be older and say, yes, I went and did that. I love that. So Shannon, we ask all of our guests this one question as well. You know, if you could throw a little party right now, what, what kind of party are you throwing? Just sort of gives us oh. insight into like kind of what you're like, like who's coming, what kind of food are you eating, what sort of activities oh, are we man. doing? We're dancing for sure. Okay. We are throwing down and having a big dance party because I love to dance. And food, food, got to have good food. It's got to be a variety. I love all kinds of food. So some sort of international smorgasbord of snacks. I love that. And drinks and dancing. That's what we need. That sounds so fun. So 
because you're you're such a wonderful outdoors woman, gear that you like to travel with are just things. So if you're going on a trip, like, do you have three things that you just always have with you? Oh, uh, yeah, probably. So, and this is probably sad, but I like to take my iPad because I also like to read a lot. And so at night, if I'm even winding down in my tent, I like, I'll have books on my iPad and, and do a little reading. And then, um, like I said, food is hugely important. So if I am out for a long period, I am not somebody that likes to just grab a um, food bar and just consider that a meal. So I'm going to have some kind of good food with me. So I've got to do that. Let's see what would be the third thing. The right clothes. It's got to be the right clothes. And growing up in Houston, I am not used to cold weather. So if I pretty much go anywhere, it's going to be cold and I'm going to need my layers. So I need my clothes, my food, and my iPad. I love it. What was your favorite food in space? Ah, yeah. So I think my favorite, favorite food was some of the curries that the Japanese sent up. Japanese curry is really, really yummy. It's it's not like Indian curry, but it is really good. And then on the American side, they had they would actually have this uh, barbecue beef that was sent up, which was pretty darn tasty. That was a, always a special occasion. Yum. Any advice just to those who want to live more wildly? They've got a big goal and they want to go after it. <laughs> You've got to be bold. you got to be bold. But it takes some planning. You can't be, you can't just, you know, all of a sudden say, hey, tomorrow I think I'm going to go hike the Appalachian Trail. That's not going to work. Put some thought into it. Figure out what it takes to do what you need to do and then start chipping away at, at planning for it and then be sure you go do it. Shannon, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for what you do for our country and the world. Oh, thank you. And your insights. It's awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you so much to Shannon and to NASA for doing what you do. I so enjoyed hearing your story. And if you want to work at NASA, now you know how. Thank you so much to all of you for listening to this show, writing reviews, giving me guest ideas. This show has been so much fun. We got a review recently from S. Connie Gal 10. It's a long review, but I'll, I'll just read you this last part. The show is life-changing, which is amazing. Thank you, Shelby and REI, for this beloved podcast. P.S. Can I come surf with you in San Diego? Yes. The answer is yes. Just message me if you're here and we'll go out. I love that. Wherever you're listening to this show, don't forget some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas. Thanks again for listening, for subscribing. For telling your friends, thanks to this team who puts this podcast on. We'll see you next week. Bye.